Beautiful Orchids, Horrific Honey Fungus and Britain in Bloom on the BBC. All this and more, including virtual reality garden tours on today's RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Davison, Head of Libraries and Exhibitions here at the Lindy Library in London. I look after the amazing collections of the RHS. If you think you've got problems storing all your books, we measure our shelving in kilometres. Our show season, which has just begun in earnest, is always an extra busy time for us. We run special behind-the-scenes curator tours at the Lindy Library during these shows. It's a great opportunity to show our collections off and talk to garden lovers about our horticultural history. Now we're getting ready for our next exhibition, Rethinking Repton, which opens on May the 3rd. It celebrates the 18th century garden designer Humphrey Repton. What's really nice about this exhibition is we're getting to work with young garden designers from Rittle University College and they've been seeing how their practice can be influenced by the design philosophy of an 18th century garden designer Humphrey Repton. In contrast to the calm of the library, there was a riot of colour and scent as orchids and spring flowers filled the Lindley and Lawrence halls from floor to ceiling. The podcast team went to speak to some of the orchid lovers and experts about the pleasures and pitfalls of cultivating these exotic blooms. Hello, uh, I'm Sarah Rittershausen from Burnham Nurseries. We're in Newton Abbott in Devon. I'm the third generation of my family to be involved with growing the orchids. It was started by my grandfather, our nursery, so we've been going nearly 70 years. And we've been at the RHS London Orchid Show every year since it started. It's a lovely show, there's lots to see, lots of colour everywhere, which is really nice. We have vandas, we have cymbidiums, dendrobiums, and some little species on the front of our display here, because we, we grow a lot of little unusual orchids for collectors as well, not just your big pot plants. We've got some amazing sort of cerise pinks, some real sort of like blue, the lavender sort of purpley blues are very unusual, and they're very striking. We've also got green, we've got white, we've got yellow, we've got some dark burgundies, you've got pink, you've got every colour of the rainbow basically which is what's great about orchids there's something for everybody with orchids there's also a lot of orchids that are quite easy the mistake that a lot of people make is that they make it too complicated and they think oh it's an orchid it must need this it must need that whereas actually if you just pick a simple one to start and you keep it simple just by providing a few simple things um, a good light position but no bright summer sun a little bit of warmth depending on whether it's a cool orchid or a warm orchid and creating a bit of humidity humidity is the important thing especially indoors when it's quite a dry atmosphere with our central heating and things like that and if you just spray them a little bit get that right sort of atmosphere for them and keep it simple then they'll they'll romp away those people who make it more complicated and fuss over them I'm afraid don't get on usually quite as well as those who maybe just ignore them a little bit most people tend to start off with the phalaenopsis the moth orchids yes they're the ones you see in a lot of places for sale but that's because they're quite easy going and that's why they're popular um, so they're a good place to start really colorful flowers um, there's lots to see here at the show and the difference with those against other types of orchids is that they don't really have a season so they can flower at any time of the year the flowers are really long lasting so that's a bonus as well and they can flower you know just like non-stop throughout the year and they don't get too big they're nice and manageable so for those reasons people love them and they're a good place to start and then if you do well with those you can branch out into other things good afternoon my name's john dunn i'm a naturalist and a writer from the shetland islands i'm here at the rhs orchid show at the lindley hall in london and I'm going to be speaking this afternoon uh, all about my new book, which is called Orchid Summer. 
just been published by Bloomsbury and that's an account of my exploits hunting for all of Britain and Ireland's native orchids in the course of one long colourful kaleidoscope summer. It's a, a, a history also of the, the stories attached to those orchids, the places in which they're found and people involved with the plants and the places alike across the centuries. So it's not just a travel log, although it's that, it's also a really colourful um, adventure through Britain and Ireland's orchids. Depending on the taxonomist's determinations, we've got between 52 and maybe 56 species in Britain. And everything from the um, completely uh, chlorophyll-free ones which grow in the darkest of woodlands and draw their nutrients via fungi in the soil from surrounding trees, or in the case of narrow-lipped hellebrins, they actually draw their nutrients from truffles, which is fantastic. What rarefied taste that orchid has. Um, through to, obviously, the, the very famous ghost orchid, which goes decades without sightings in, in, in Britain's woodlands. And then you've got things which are, are growing in a, such a wide variety of habitats. So there's, there's an orchid basically for every habitat in Britain. So in Scotland, on the high acid um, soil moorlands, you've got lovely things like heath-spotted orchids. Really common, but so beautiful. Out on Holy Island, Lindisfarne, you've got an orchid which is only found in one corner of that island, in the world. So it's an endemic orchid and in a good year maybe 300 of those flower. So it's a pretty sobering thought. Everyone goes on about the, the Amur tiger for example being a massively endangered species. There's probably fewer of that particular orchid, the Lindisfarne helleborin, than there are Amur tigers in the wild. I think I'm like a lot of people. I, I have some from the supermarket sitting on a windowsill um, I'm pleased to say I keep them alive. I, I'm not overwatering them or underwatering them. Mine are, mine are doing fine and they're fed with beautiful clean Shetland rainwater and so they're, they're doing well, thank you. As the show manager told us, the spectacular moth orchid display that Double H Nurseries have been working on promises to be one of the highlights of this year's Chatsworth Flower Show in Derbyshire. I'm Liz Patterson and I'm the RHS Chatsworth Flower Show show manager. RHS Chatsworth 2018 is going to be a feast for the eyes and the senses. Stunning colours, beautiful flowers from our amazing floral exhibitors and nurseries. We've got some amazing things to see at the show. As you come in the entrance, we've got 12,000 cosmos, which we're calling the River of Cosmos. They're about 80 centimetres to a metre tall, so they will flow in the wind, which will tie in with our theme of movement. We're going for razzmatazz, which is all different types of pinks, so it will look absolutely stunning. People can meander around and sit in amongst it, and it will just be a great thing to see. Also, in the Great Conservatory, which is our nod to Paxton's Great Conservatory that once was at Chatsworth, we're going all out orchids. There'll be around 5,000 Phalaenopsis orchids, which is a huge, huge amount. We've got Jonathan Mosley designing. We're going to have a waterfall. The place will be dripping with orchids. Also with that, we've got a fantastic virtual reality feature. So visitors can sit in these hanging chairs that will vibrate. They'll put on the headsets and they'll go on a journey and they will become the pollinator. That's a definite must and that will be really exciting. We've also got the Living Laboratory, which is in conjunction with our science team, showcasing how plants and gardening can be integrated into the urban environment, which can provide environmental and health benefits. So we've got different themes. We've got food, flooding, pollution, exercise and well-being, which is very important. There'll be lots of fun things to do. 
we've got micro crops and salad bar and people can try things there'd be microscopes that people can look at different types of planting the plants that are good for pollution you know the ones that are quite furry so yeah there'd be lots of things for people to do and see RHS Chats for Flower Show is going to be a sellout show, so please make sure you don't miss out. Book your tickets now. Go online. If you're a member, you can book members' tickets or you can walk up to the show on the day and buy your tickets there. It's a must. It's going to be absolutely stunning. My name's Dan Pass. I'm from Double H Nurseries. We grow Phalaenopsis or moth orchids and we're based down in the New Forest on the south coast. So Chatsworth is in its second year, so we're really honoured to be asked to supply the orchids for it. So Jonathan Mosley is the designer. He's been down to the nursery, we've had a really good chat and he's seen the product that's coming through and we've talked to him about what sort of colour schemes he wants and the formats of orchids that he wants. He really gets behind the British grown Phalaenopsis, which is great. We're supplying several thousand orchids. It's going to be the biggest orchid display that there's been. So yeah, we're just really proud to be involved with that. We grow about 1.5 million a year, so in our overall production, it's quite easy for us to supply something like that. We're trying to grow them to a particular specification for him, so we want the flowers a lot more open, just so it's got that impact. There's a lot of buds on Phalaenopsis, and we just want to make sure lots of them are open. I think when you go into it, because it's an inflatable structure, which in itself is incredible, I think it's just going to be welcomed by a myriad of colour. We really hope to put a lot of scented orchids in there as well. It's going to be humid in there because of all the moisture from the plants. You're going to get that myriad of colour and you can hopefully get a great scent as well. So it's going to be like going into the tropics uh, in an inflatable dome in Chatsworth's ground. We grow over 100 different varieties and they can be seen at Chatsworth, so we're going to send all our varieties up. But more of the interesting varieties and things that have got a bit of a point of difference is our AGM collection. So they are orchids which stand out from the rest. The Royal Horticultural Society has a criteria that all these plants and, and orchids have to go through. And you know, behind us we've got nine uh, varieties that have kind of gone through that criteria. And that's things from the number of flowers um, that they're the unusual colours and things like that. We've got things like Purple Princess, which is a, a really kind of deep purple with a lovely white edge. And that's, that's really quite unique. The, the, the depth of colour is fascinating. Um, we've got another one called Violet Queen. Um, violet is the Pantone colour of the year, and just so happens we've got one that's a, a lovely violet colour as well. It's got loads of flowers, and it's just a really unusual colour that you, you don't see in Phalaenopsis that often and that's what kind of gets it, it's, a, it's a AGM. So far no, no great challenges, always making sure that you've got healthy plants. We use a lot of biocontrols so we don't like to spray pesticides and those sorts of treatment on the crops. So yeah it's always a challenge with, with those kind of more natural methods to make sure everything is 100% perfect. There's a real myth around orchids that they're difficult to look after when in fact, you know, after succulents and cactus, they're actually really easy to look after. You know, water it once a week, just simply run it under a tap. You don't really need to have kind of rainwater. The only reason we kind of, you know, sometimes people save for the rainwater side of things is because there's a bit more natural nutrients in there. But other than that, they actually got low nutrient requirements. So it's not something that you need to really be feeding every, every couple of weeks. Cut it back when it finishes flowering. Um, three or four months later, new shoots start to, start to appear and away we go. So my three top tips would be water once a week, simply running it under a tap or dunking it into some water. 
Don't let it stand in water. It's the biggest killer is overwatering of Phalaenopsis. And don't leave it near radiators. The amount of homes of friends and family that I've gone into, they've got, so got it in a lovely location in a windowsill right above the radiator. Chatsworth is going to be an absolutely extraordinary event. Tickets are available online. I really, really recommend it this year. The RHS Chatsworth Flower Show runs from the 6th to the 10th of June. You can buy tickets and see more information and photos on our website. See our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. On this page, you can also find links to all the other items and topics in this podcast, including things to see and do in the coming weeks. So now the sun has finally started shining, why not get out and visit one of our glorious RHS gardens? There are hundreds of fantastic events for everyone, from seasoned plant experts to even the tiniest green fingers. See our podcast page for more details. Now TV. This week saw the launch of an exciting new 15-part series on BBC Two, following the trials and tribulations of 15 communities taking part in this year's RHS Britain in Bloom competition. Presenter Chris Bavin has been travelling around the UK, meeting the people taking part, and he's been seeing how this competition has impacted on people and communities. I'm Chris Bevin and we've recently finished filming Britain in Bloom, which is a new series for BBC Two. It was incredible to film and the show looks beautiful, as you would imagine. I mean, it's set amongst a beautiful backdrop of, of flowers and plants, but it's so much more than that. You know, Britain in Bloom started as part of the tourist board to try and attract people to visit different areas, you know, to sort of get people to spruce up their area, make it pretty, make it attractive, make it encouraging for people to visit. Then it's sort of taken on various guises over the years. Now the RHS are in control of it, and it's a fabulous competition incredibly prestigious that's been running for decades where 300,000 volunteers every year give up the best part of 12 million hours volunteering to improve their local area and it's about so much more than just hanging baskets and window boxes I mean don't get me wrong they play their part but it's about so much more than that you know Britain in Bloom encapsulates everything that's positive in the world, you know, about civic responsibility, community participation and galvanizing neighbors and communities from all different walks of life together, which is which is incredibly exciting and, and, and really heartwarming. And people are going to see it from day one. So we go to each community, we visit 15 different communities, and you'll see it from the very beginning, from them coming up with the ideas, what they need to do, what they what their aspirations are, what their hopes are, what they're planning on. And you'll see it right through to the very end, to judging day. And everything in between, you'll see incredible transformations. You'll see some huge heartwarming successes. You'll see some failures as well, unfortunately. Everybody's going for gold. Not everybody gets it. But I think it's such a wonderful, warm, exciting, incredible competition and programme. I had the incredible opportunity to plant and work with the fabulous gardeners at the Dingle in Shrewsbury, which is Percy Thrower's old stomping ground. So for the opportunity to actually plant up one of those Victorian formal flower beds in what is arguably the very, very best, the gold standard in gardening. I mean, what what a great accolade. That's definitely going on my CV and is something that I will never forget. But I did the hard work as well, you know, whether it be trying to tidy up a, a train station, whether it be litter picking outside a police station, whether it be washing graffiti off of walls. I was in waders in a river in Grimsby pulling out shopping trolleys and TVs and 
you name it, I've done it. But I did it for a reasonably short period of time. These guys are doing it day in, day out, week in, week out, year after year after year. And the thing that struck me the most about Brent and Bloom is there's a handful of people in every community that are doing so, so much. And it's humbling and inspiring to see that. There is no shortage of characters and marvellous, marvellous people and wonderful, wonderful volunteers. We've met mayors, we've met councillors, we've met vicars and everyone in between. You know, it's amazing. And I think it's important that people understand that Britain in Bloom isn't about those picture postcard villages, you know, with the, the cricket green in the middle. It's it's about everything. You know, we, we go to rural areas, we go to urban areas, we go to areas that don't have the financial clout or the funding. We go to more affluent areas, you know, Britain in Bloom. A gardening competition, yes, granted, the most prestigious gardening competition there is, but a gardening competition nevertheless. I have literally seen firsthand it bring communities together, you know, from all walks of life. And whatever your your background or your beliefs or, or you know, your, your political motives, whatever it might be, you know, it brings everyone together through gardening through flowers through plants you know it, it's amazing that it has that power that this competition has the power that it does i've seen people that would never have possibly even acknowledged each other on hands and knees working next to each other you know all for the greater good all for the the interests of, of their community and, and improving that so he's breaking down boundaries bringing people together and making communities harmonious and cohesive I think the most important thing for me that I took away from this was a few things, actually. One was my newfound respect for begonias. I've seen it now in all its glory, in all its different varieties. And let me tell you, I am now a convert. I think they're absolutely fabulous. But I think the biggest thing that I've taken away from Britain in Bloom is, is my village doesn't have Britain in Bloom. My village doesn't enter Britain in Bloom. But it absolutely will. I'm going to make it my mission to get my local community in Britain in Bloom because you can just see the positive effects. And, and I've seen what, what it does to other communities, what it does to other areas. There's nothing about that that you wouldn't want for your area. And hopefully people watch the show, hopefully people like the show. But for me, the, the real success of it will be lots of people at home thinking, do you know what? There's no reason at all why we shouldn't enter my village, my town, my community in Britain in Bloom because everything about it is positive. Everybody wants to live in a nice place. Everybody wants to have pretty flowers and hanging baskets and, and nice communal areas and all these different things, you know, less litter, less graffiti, parks looking good and their roundabouts looking fabulous. Who would not want that? So I really, really, really hope that on watching Britain in Bloom, the British public go, do you know what? That's for me. I'm going to enter. Come in, put your tea on, sit down, relax, and just be in awe of all the fabulous floral creations that are going on up and down the country. And I'm not being over the top when I say Britain in Bloom has the ability to make the world a better place. Britain in Bloom is broadcast on BBC Two at 6.30 every weeknight from the 16th of April till the 4th of May. And finally, which plant disease caused the most problems for gardeners in the UK in 2017? Throughout the year, our scientists help gardeners with research-based advice on a range of queries. At the end of every year, they analyse these questions to get an up-to-date picture of the current state of plant health in the UK and spot new horticultural threats. So, here's plant disease specialist Matthew Cromie with a rundown of the most problematic diseases of last year and how to avoid them affecting your garden in 2018. 
Honey fungus was number one again. Honey fungus is always number one. It's a big issue because uh, a lot of a lot of different trees and shrubs are susceptible to this disease, and uh, when they succumb, they die, and they can die very quickly. So people are very concerned about that. Um, it's been number tw number one for a long time. We are ramping up our research now, so we've got quite a lot of areas we're looking at. Um, just one example, for instance, um, we went through all our records in 2017, and we see much the same range of, of hosts of, of trees and shrubs that have died as before. But what we're trying to do is, is find ways of more accurate, accurately determining which ones are less susceptible than, than others. Um, the difficulty is if we just go for how many records we get, well, we often get the very common trees and shrubs, um, because if people have a lot more roses or aces in their garden, then you'll expect them to get more uh, disease. So if we just look at uh, the, the ones we have very few records on, they tend to be the rare, the, the rare hosts. So we're actually trying to look at proportionality related to how common a, a tree or a shrub is in a garden and uh, how likely it is that someone would be concerned about it to try and actually get a better record. So when people have had honey fungus in the garden, they've lost a tree or a shrub, what are they going to replace it with? We want to give them better information as to what's less susceptible than the, than the others. So that's one area. We're also looking at further afield at, at ways of managing the disease uh, in environmentally friendly ways. So that's going to take a while, um, but we do have various uh, options that we hope will come up in the future. The box diseases have, have uh, continued to be pretty serious in gardens. Box blight and volutella blight, uh, both on box, were number five and number six this year. But the interesting thing with this is that they're single host diseases, so they're, they're only on box. So that really shows how important they are. The ones higher on the list, like rusts for instance, uh, you have lots of different rusts on a range of different plants. So box is still a major issue. Uh, we are working more on, on integrated management of those. Um, and one of the new things for the, for the future is I've just had some, some news from the Belgian uh, box breeders and uh, they, they're hoping in the next year or so that there'll be some much more resistant cultivars available. So that'll be a real help in managing the disease. The problem is that the, the two main box types that people grow in their gardens are very, very highly susceptible to box blight. Um, so if we can have something that's just somewhat less susceptible, then it becomes a much easier disease to manage. And as soon as they're available, we'll look at incorporating that into, into our strategies for managing the disease. One of the interesting things that keeps on cropping up um, in, in the recent years is pear rust. Pear rust is, has been around for a long time, probably 100 years, but it never used to be much of an issue, and it's becoming much more of an issue in, in gardens these days. There are no fungicides people can use on outdoor edible crops these days, so people need to rely on other means of controlling disease. The good thing with pear rust is that uh, it's a bit unsightly, unless you like the look of it. It's quite a, a very interesting looking disease, but it generally doesn't affect yield for, for gardeners. So it's best just not to worry too much about it. But one of the things that's happening now with the, with the reduction or the, the elimination of fungicides available for home gardeners, people haven't really moved towards the less susceptible cultivars. So a lot of the fruit cultivars people are growing, we get inquiries coming in, whether it be raspberries, blackberries, pears, and they're still growing the cultivars they used to like to grow um, that they could use fungicides on, but they're highly susceptible to disease. So it's going to be important that people consider the cultivars that they plant in future, whether it be vegetable, fruit, fruit trees, 
um, to, to try and grow some, some that are less susceptible to disease. And there are, there are variations between the different cultivars. We are always getting new diseases coming in periodically. So one of the new ones we've got this year, it's coming at number 10, so it's quite common, but that's Keria twig and leaf blight. It's specific to Keria, so you won't see it on, on anything else. But it's a pretty serious disease of Keria. You get leaf fall, you get spots on the twigs. And so it can be quite devastating if you're growing Keria. Um, unfortunately with these things, um, while fungicides can potentially be applied, uh, some of these ones there's not really any, any obvious control. So sometimes it's a matter of choosing what you grow, maybe don't grow quite so much. And the greater variety of things you have in your garden, um, the less risk you're going to have. If you, if you just grew Keria in your garden, you've got Keria leaf and twig blight, then uh, you might be in for a big trouble. It's 2018, year of plant health. RHS is taking plant health very seriously and if you're visiting our show at Chatsworth, you'll see there's a plant health garden at Chatsworth that's aiming to find ways that gardeners can use to minimise the risk of, of diseases coming into gardens, new diseases coming into the UK. So uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is, is increase awareness of the risk of plant, of plant diseases that are found outside of the UK. Uh, one of the risks is that people will find some nice plant in their holiday home that they're visiting in, in Europe somewhere, take a cutting, take a plant back and bring new diseases back with them. Uh, one of the key ones is Xylella, which is a bacterial disease which is now found in parts of Europe when you really want to keep that out of the UK. Um, so the more awareness we have, that's why plant health is, is really important for us this year, um, encouraging gardeners to do their bit to minimise the risks of bringing new things in. Matthew Cromie. You can listen to all the previous editions of the RHS Gardening Podcast, including our last one, episode 126, with a rundown of the top 10 garden pests through the podcast page of our website. That's all we've got time for today. We'll be back in a fortnight when we'll be getting ready for the Chelsea Flower Show. Until then, you can follow the library on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. In the next few weeks, we're going to be seeking out hidden gardeners in the pages of our library books. So keep your eyes peeled till then.